0: The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights, all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today.
1: Happy Tuesday, everybody. Good morning. You're watching Scorebox. You've got Jeff on your right and me, Steve Cedric, on your left. Uh, Let's give you some headlines. NVIDIA's $66 billion deal to buy SoftBank's chip business, ARM, is reportedly dead in the water. This amid intense regulatory pressure. CNBC has learned that Tesla is tweaking steering components uh, from some made-in-China cars, looking to meet sales targets amid the global chip shortage. But keeps the move quiet.
0: U.S. President Joe Biden draws a line in the sand, threatening to put an end to Nord Stream two. If Russian soldiers set foot in Ukraine after meeting with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in Washington,
2: if uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine again. Then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring it into.
0: Meanwhile, the French President Emmanuel Macron says the next few days will be critical after meeting his Russian counterpart in Moscow.
3: Growing tensions increase the risk of seeing a brutal deterioration of the continent's balance of power and stability. It would be in nobody's interest.
1: And net profit at BNP Paribas surges 34% over 2021 as the French lender sets out a new strategy to 2025. The CFO Lars Machinel tells CNBC the bank is prepared for any ECB rate hikes.
2: If there would now be interest rates picking up to reflect a step up in the economy, well, we will be there to accompany that and, and take the benefits from it.
1: Right, let us dive into a couple of these big stories. We've got a lot going on in the show today, including BP results in one hour's time. We'll be speaking to Bernard Looney there, of course, first on SoftBank. Okay, two stories here. One is the set of results at the nine month level. The second uh, is a blow to their hopes of offloading the arm stake. Let's go through the arm story first. SoftBank says arm sale to NVIDIA was unsuccessful due to regulatory hurdles. Ended talks with NVIDIA about the sale. Will announce record profit and revenue for Arm, though. Um, the Arm CEO, Rennie Haas, who took over from Simon Seegers, says SoftBank is going to make an announcement on the deal with uh, Arm. Well, they've already done that, so um, maybe there's more to come. Now, the results over at the group. Now, these are, well, these are... Pretty horrendous, really. Whether the market was ready for it or not remains to be seen. As you can see, the share price reaction at the moment, we're down. But we have come a long way down. I'll just remind you on the share price where we have come down from. We hit a five-year high of 16.02 on the Japanese market in September. Uh, Spin forward four or five months, and we are now at 14.50. 40, well, I beg pardon on the listing I'm looking at anyway, but as you can see the listing there, they've come down a long, long way, aggressively lower uh, from their highs of last year. Uh, nine-month group, pre-tax profit, 1.23 trillion yen, down 63.3%. A net profit down 87.1%. So big, big declines uh, on those Uh, two key measures and there you can see uh, SoftBank shares again different measure here looking at different listing but here over 10,000 in what are we talking there in March April and then falling aggressively uh, over the uh, last year as well so a lot of concerns about a lot of their bets Jeff did you want to come in on SoftBank (laughs) a company that could do no wrong a couple of years ago now I'm not saying it's in the Kathy Wood camp of a lot of assets which are underperforming, which a lot of big bets are made on growth, but I guess there are parallels to what we're seeing at some of these growth funds investing in companies that could well be the next big shiny thing, but have to show us the route to profitability. Similar parallels are being made about Masayoshi Shun's investments.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I I, uh, absolutely agree with you, Steve. I mean, just reading through the numbers here, They are painful, aren't they, quite frankly. The company delivered a sales line at 4.5 trillion yen. The year ago comparison on the nine month numbers was 4.14 trillion. So sales were actually up uh, 10 percent or so on the uh, previous uh, period based on these earnings. But the operating pre-tax is a negative 63.3 percent at 1.23 trillion yen as against 3.36 trillion uh, for the um, year ago period on the nine month comparison. And no doubt, as you're pointing out here, a lot of that is to do with the fact that the value of the assets within the business, it's a private equity company uh, effectively, have fallen. Precipitously, and I'll just take you back to a um, an article at the end of January, which uh, quoted the Vision Fund CEO Rajiv Misra as complaining somewhat about the overvaluation that we now see in private markets. And notwithstanding the fact that maybe there are some of you in the audience who might think that soft bankers in part contributed to that overvaluation by handing startups fat checks for hundreds of millions. But there does seem to be the reality of harder miles ahead here. And CB Insights says... Uh, $600 billion was ultimately spent on startups in 2021. That was double the previous year's high. 900 startups now have a valuation of over a billion dollars. And as we all know, I expect if you raked through those startups and tried to figure out which ones were actually making a profit at the moment it would be a significantly smaller number. So the reality is, as uh, uh, Rajiv Mizra points out, you've got software as a service companies that are starting up, that are trading on multiples of something like 20 times forward revenue in the private markets, uh, only, say, 12 times in the public markets, I say only. And of course, there is then that Question mark as to what happens from here with tighter liquidity, tighter monetary conditions, and inflation nibbling away at the attractiveness of these growth businesses. And it's, it's difficult, Steve, not to draw the conclusion that we may just have come over the peak for the best times for the growth companies. But we'll have to wait and watch here. But it does seem as though it's going to be harder miles going forward.
1: All of the above, and and you and I have had a problem with a lot of these valuations for a long time. Let us remember, it is not uncommon and has historically not been uncommon. Just to put your numbers into context, those stratospheric numbers... To buy companies on six times forward revenue, it was one of the markers that you would buy a a company on going forward. We're not talking about profitability here, ladies and gentlemen. We've moved on from that because, of course, we're not allowed to look at profitability in the short to medium term now, especially when analysing growth companies. It's back to the future. It's a bit like 2000. So when we look at a lot of these companies that were on six times revenue, Jeff now uh, talking about companies that are valued at up to 20 times forward revenue. 20 years of forward revenue. Not 20 years of profitability. Nowhere near profitability on these. Uh, And that reminds me very much of where we were 20, 21 years ago. And unfortunately, if we have got a rate tightening cycle, which it appears we have, and that was a a bewildering um, revelation to many people yesterday on the markets, that actually BTP yields can go up, that actually Greek paper can go up. And all those years of the Draghi and the Lagarde put as well may well be significantly behind us as well. So it is making people look at the cash flow of these companies going forward and perhaps bring a sense of reality. We're not talking about valuations crashing back down to six times forward on sales, but we are talking about just a bit of a realisation check there. In a world where interest rates are potentially going up, albeit at a glacial pace, that makes those projections very, very difficult as well. The other point that we all know, and I mentioned it yesterday on the channel as well, is that um, SoftBank and a lot of other VC players, they do not expect all of their assets to make it. But what they do expect is around about a fifth of their assets to make it very, very large, so that can pay for all their losing bets as well. At the moment, they are struggling to get that 2080 uh, power law, uh, as Sebastian Mallaby put it as well, in place as well. Jeff, I don't know if you want to come back on that before you go to BMP.
0: Well, just to flag up a guest, um, Richard Windsor is going to be joining us in the next hour of programming. So we're going to talk a bit about the collapse, collapse of the Arm and the NVIDIA deal. Uh, but you and I know, you know, if you come back to your sort of investment fundamentals, there is something very important called the margin of safety Uh, and uh, ultimately the margin of safety I I would suggest has largely been ignored in the go-go years of liquidity everywhere and Tina there is no alternative and you just buy what seems to be going up you buy the momentum well at times that story changes and it tends to get very choppy. It's not unusual to see something like a 10% correction ahead of a shift in interest rates and that's what's going on at the moment and we see this volatility in markets but that's when it's very important to remember your discipline and your margin of safety because that margin of safety represents uh, your opportunity when markets turn and it is you know people fixate about what is the right exit price how much profit should I take you are only going to have the pleasure of fixating on how much profit you take if you got the entry price right and that is the key to your margin of safety. And no doubt we'll come back to this a little bit later on as we uh, focus some more on how the US market sort of turned tail uh, again yesterday during the session. But let's move swiftly on, because I know we've got Charlotte waiting in the wings. and We've had some numbers here from BNP Paribas. The uh, French bank this morning delivering a, uh, a fourth quarter loan loss provision of uh, 5 Uh, 510 million Uh, the bank says uh, revenue in at 11.23 billion for the fourth quarter a net profit of 2.31 billion these figures on the fourth quarter seem to beat expectations uh, as far as uh, I can see on these figures the uh, CT1 ratio in at a healthy 12.9 percent as at December 31st so no issue with Uh, Capital here, the ROTE target going forward uh, from a 10% number for 2021, the group is now looking at more than 11% under the new 2022 2025 strategic plan and that's the interesting thing about these numbers not only have we got fourth quarter and full year 2021 but we've got new goals up to 2025. Charlotte let me defer to you here because I know you've been talking with the bank and you can tell us a little bit more about how ambitious these goals are.
4: Yes, and you went through the top numbers there, as you said, they had strong first three quarters of the year, Q4 beating expectations. There again, you went through the numbers, so I'm not going to repeat them here. And look, it's a bank that's been changing a lot. Uh, they've been they want they make very clear the ambition that they want to be the key investment man, the go-to European investment bank, and they've placed themselves changing their business really to uh, to adapt to this. You remember two years ago they acquired the prime brokerage uh, unit from Deutsche Bank. Uh, they bought the share in Exxon that they didn't already own. They got some client referrals. From from they have really been pushing that They want back some market share uh, during COVID where some of the big U.S. players kind of retreated back to the U.S. market. They want some market share and they want to fight that corner. They've beefed up their, their global equities. They want to be what well, they've been an underdog in that bid. They were much stronger in fixed, fixed income. Uh, they're really trying to be the key European player in that field. While a lot of other European players have decided to move away from this, thinking they cannot compete with uh, the Americans and the big American banks. The BNP Paribas is very much pushing it in that field. So very interesting change their strategy uh, for the bank uh, I had a chance to catch up with the CFO of BNP Paribas to look at the results of 2021 and he had a look of where the growth was coming from in the different units take a listen
2: domestic markets revenues are up 5% thanks to the good commercial activity across all the networks and all the specialized services i remind you that in those specialized services we have for example arval our fleet leasing revenues up 20 percent we also have nickel, our alternative bank services up more than 20 percent and so that's that part and then if you look at international financial services they picked up with very strong net inflows and then CIB, well they continued their strong commercial momentum driven by all of its businesses, confirming its position as a European leader with market share gains across all of the businesses. So that's why, so BNP Paribas is doing well, but each of its businesses is doing very well.
4: We are entering an environment of higher interest rates. Of course, that's also because there, so that could be a good tailwind, of course, for for banks and for BNP Paribas, but that's also because we've seen inflation persisting, um, which could be a headwind. So how are you positioning your business in this environment that we see um, coming into 2022?
2: Well, if you look at the overall planning that we take as a base around which we, we work everything out, we basically took a very conservative stance on it. Yeah, And so that's basically what we do. So if there would now be interest rates picking up to reflect a step up in the economy, well, we will be there to accompany that and, and take the benefits from it.
4: So they said they also presented this new strategic plan. So there's a reshuffle of the business uh, Well, they're putting all the banking uh, business in one unit and the investment and insurance business in another unit and then CIB. So there's a slight reshuffle of how they organize the business. They also present some new targets. So they expect now between 2022 and 2025 a return of tangible equity of more than 11% by 2025. Revenue growth of more than 3.5% annually and net profit on average up 7% each year and maintain a CT1 ratio of 12% in 2025. That's a new target that they presented uh, for the next four years. They also announced a 60% payout ratio. So it's been 50% up until now for BNP Paribas. They're they're raising up to 60% with a minimum of 50% 50 cash payout and the rest would be uh, share buybacks, uh, for for example. So these new numbers there presented by BNP Paribas on a bank that has their shares up uh, more than 50% over the past 12 months. So a very interesting story there for BNP Paribas beating their result in the past few quarters and this change this in-depth business uh, very much axing beefing up the investment bank steve
1: sorry sorry, charlotte i know that people are probably going to celebrate today and buy the shares and be excited about the improvement but i'm not convinced um if you are targeting a return on tangible equity above your cost of capital only by 2025, when some of your rivals such as Santander last week, and we spoke to uh, uh, the the chair there last week as well, Anna Bottin, talking about a return on tangible equity target of 13% as well uh, in 2022, by the way. How is that a good figure if you can only reach a level above your cost of capital by 2025? It seems to me, dare I say it, quite woeful compared to some of the competitors.
4: BNP is very well known for giving very conservative targets and um, and beating them more easily in a way in a sense they've always been given these very very conservative kind of targets so last year because of the uncertainty with COVID they said they would just have see a growth in revenue and the previous strategic plan that they had presented also had this sort of very conservative targets sometimes they update those targets on the way if results are better than expected but that's usually what they do so promise less and deliver more I guess.
1: But, but what road are they turning in at the moment? I haven't had a chance to look.
4: Uh, return on tangible equity is at 10%, so that's, that's been okay. stable over the past well, couple of okay, quarters. Okay, well
1: that's great. That should be above your cost of capital for a bank that's getting money sent to them from the ECB at zero, isn't it? Or am I missing something?
4: Maybe next time we need to bring Lars Machini to do this live interview with us and we can grill him on all these questions.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, coming up on the show, President Biden says the U.S. is in lockstep with Germany over Russian aggression towards Ukraine. And the French President, uh, Monsieur Macron, says the next few days will be crucial in talks with Moscow. We will have the latest after the break. And Jeff, the podcast, I'm told it's a goodie. Yeah, and for and for more on SoftBank's earnings
0: and that ill-fated ARM NVIDIA deal check out the podcast as steve's recommended it is available on spotify and apple podcasts we'll be back everybody
1: um it was a disappointing day for those of you who are long the market who are hoping for an acceleration of the rally we saw towards the tail end of last week but there's just too many counterflows at the moment to get that kind of momentum going there are some products i mean credit where it's due it's been a very large bounce in bitcoin for instance as well from down about 33 1,000 per Bitcoin to uh, touching year highs around 44,000. So some products are getting a bit of momentum. Some of the tech names aren't as well. And and I think it's been one of the most interesting earning seasons for years, because rather than across the board, everyone doing well, I know we've had this usual beat on revenues and earnings, uh, 70 odd percent beat, but you've got to ignore that. That, 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 That's always going to happen. You always market low uh, to uh, funnily enough beat. But I think in the individual names, there's some fantastic moves as well. The Dow did absolutely zip yesterday. I'll just go you through where we are compared to our record highs. We're 5% off our record highs on the Dow. We're 7% off our record highs on the S&P. But the Nasdaq is actually 13.6% below its record highs. And, And we're seeing a split, aren't we? We're seeing stratospheric numbers from... Couple of those big names that you rely on in order to bulk up your portfolio. You, we know you've only got six stocks out there. You pretend you've got the S&P, but you've got six, haven't you? <laughs> or something like that. Uh, Apple, Google, um, uh, Amazon, great numbers in the earnings season. But some of these names, and I'll just roll forward, are really not performing, and I'll just roll forward. Rod's, Rod's gonna be there eventually. And I'll just roll for- here we go, we're, we're back are really struggling. Uh, And Netflix, and there's a lot of comment from the analyst community now, who've only just discovered that actually Netflix is one of many uh, streaming sites out there. It it is in many ways at the top of the tree in terms of its product, in terms of its scale, but it is a vicious war out there. Uh, And and, and the problem is when you've got Amazon Prime, which sends stuff through the post to you as well and gives you benefit for doing so, you can absorb a 20 bucks, which equals 17% rise for 147 million homes. Whereas Netflix do not have that delivery arm as well. So you can see actually the strangest thing in many ways, that a streaming service plus a delivery of product from an online marketplace combination. It's kind of one of those that actually does work, isn't it? And I know we've talked about this hundreds of times over the years. Netflix doesn't have that. So real pressure on Netflix, again, from the analyst community as well. Meta, well, what can we say that we haven't already said about Mark Zuckerberg's gr- group as well? Again, reinvention at this stage, reinvention with a path to profitability For the meta. The reason for the name change from this group was to say, we're bigger than just Facebook as well. So the analyst said, okay, you're bigger than just Facebook. Show us what you do and show us how we get there profitably as well. Because again, as Jeff and I were saying at the top of the show, there is a slight change in psyche now. It isn't growth at any cost now. It is growth with measured excitement because of the interest rate environment. And I think Mark Zuckerberg and the team, Nick Clegg, you know, all these amazing people, Uh, have to find uh, a a way to communicate with the investors that they're going to understand how this one goes forward. And Peloton is, again, the same thing. Huh, you're saying? It was 21% higher. It was 21% higher because a couple of those big names, one of them I just mentioned, could well be uh, about to put in bids for this company as well. Largest sportswear company in the world, Nike, and the largest tech company in the world, give or take, Amazon, both potentially circling Peloton as well. And that is why we saw It's 20% rally, which is slightly lower, actually, than we saw in the post-market in the previous session. Let's have a look at Tesla as well. This is fascinating. So there's a couple of big stories here, and we can talk about this at length a little bit later on if I don't go on too much. One of the stories uh, is about this subpoena. There was a 2018 deal with the U.S. authorities that basically... I was going to say shackled, but, but, but put a more of a grip around Elon Musk and his tweeting ability to talk about market sensitive issues. It's a lot deeper story than that, but you get my gist. I, they wanted him to not put out information that could move the share price aggressively on Twitter before it was put out in official statements as well, so that all shareholders could look at it rather than just the ones who follow him on Twitter. There is questions about whether he's breached that now as well. And I say questions, that's what the subpoena is really about as well. Compliance with that 2018 deal. Uh, cut a long story short, last year he asked his, um, his followers, should I sell a stake in the company as well? And I think they came back with 56% of them said yes as well. well that's kind of not the way, I mean, he's a maverick, we all know that. But is that breaking the terms of the original deal from 2018? That is what's being looked at. Plus this amazing story from uh, Laura Kolodny, who is one of our, uh, staff at CNBC. And I'll just read you a line from this as well. Uh, Laura, Laura's putting out that Tesla excluded one or of two electronic control units in the steering racks of Shanghai built Model 3s and Model Ys to deal with chip shortages. Uh, CNBC has learned a lot of these have already shipped to China, Australia, and Europe as well. Uh, and there are questions about what that does for. Um, the the, the car in terms of, is it necessary or not? Is it just a a redundant backup? Or is it needed for level two driver assistance features? Again, it's a great story. Go to cnbc.com to have a look at that. Okay, shall we have a look at Asian markets? Um, What have we got? So the Hang Seng's down a percent. That aside, very quiet session in Shanghai uh, Composite and on the Nikkei as well. We're 1.1% higher on the ASX 200. I'll show you the opening calls. Like this. So, again, um, I'd say that's a pretty flat start to trading. But of course, we've talked about markets, we've talked about earnings. Now we need to talk about geopolitics, Jeff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. France says the Russian President Vladimir Putin has moved to de-escalate tensions at the Ukrainian border by promising not to undertake any new military initiatives and withdraw existing troops from Belarus. This according to the Financial Times, which says the agreement was brokered during talks between Putin and his French counterpart, President Macron. A Kremlin spokesperson told the paper that dialogue between the two sides is still ongoing. Well, President Macron and Putin held over five hours of negotiations on Monday. The French president, uh, who is due to meet with Ukrainian leaders today, urged his Russian counterpart to respect the independence of the country, along with Moldova and Belarus, where Russia is engaged in military exercises. President Macron warned that the next few days will be crucial in the standoff uh, at the Ukrainian border. The uh, Russian leader, meanwhile, continued to criticise NATO, repeating warnings about the threat of war should Ukraine join the group, but he admitted a breakthrough in talks is possible.
3: A number of his ideas, proposals, it's too early to speak of them. I consider possible that they could serve as a basis for our further steps. We will see how the meetings of Mr. President will go. We agreed that after his visit to the Ukrainian capital, we will have a call and will exchange views on this matter.
0: U.S. President Joe Biden hosted the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz at the White House. Biden said the two countries were in lockstep over Russian aggression, but he also said he was ready to put a stop to the controversial Nord Stream 2 pipeline project.
2: If, uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then uh, there will, be, uh, we, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it.
0: Well, President Biden saying that uh, Nord Stream 2 would be a target. Um, Anetta, let's bring you into this conversation. We know Germany has an energy conundrum with regard to Russia. My sense was at the uh, press conference that uh, Mr. Schultz didn't really want to talk about Nord Stream 2 at all.
5: Yes, I think that is completely right. It's a bit of an odd appearance, I have to say. And also the German media is speculating. It's a miracle why he would not even... Uh, say the word Nord Stream 2. He was doing the press conference, but also doing other media appearances, just refusing to name the pipeline. Um, but in in other words, he was saying he would work completely together, jointly with the United States. And that would then also mean that we would back the um, <clears throat> not opening of Nord Stream 2. So it's up to a, a speculation, I would say, why he has not used the name or even mentioned Nord Stream two and why he is in a way a bit stubborn on the issue because in earlier appearances in Germany he was already saying that Nord Stream two is of course part of the pot- potential sanctions. And what I think what he follows is a a line of strategic ambiguity he's calling that. He wants the Russians not to know what's all in that package of sanction, sanctions in order that for them being like kind of perhaps, yeah, sort of, I don't know, um, not anxious about the sanctions, but just not in the know of what could happen. That's his strategy. And Whether this is working with Putin or not remains to be seen. But perhaps we listen in what uh, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, yesterday had to say about the sanctions and how uh, well prepared they are.
3: We have intensively prepared everything to be ready with the necessary sanctions if there is a military aggression against Ukraine. And this is necessary, it's necessary that we do this in advance so that Russia can clearly understand that these are far-reaching, severe measures. It's part of this process that we do not spell out everything in public because Russia could understand that there might be even more to come. And at the same time, it's very clear, we are well prepared with far-reaching measures. We will take these measures together with our allies, with our partners, with the US, and we will take all necessary steps.
5: So that's the explanation why he potentially or possibly did not mention Nord Stream 2, but it still remains a miracle why he has not done that. Um, what they have done as well in the press conference is again to stress that Germany is the biggest funder of Ukraine. So far, Germany has paid $2 billion euros in aid, but they will not deliver weapons. And that's what he said as well. It will be money, but not weapons in order to uh, keep the economy flowing in the Ukraine. But the weapon issue is um, not possible with German law as it stands.
0: Thank you for listening to Squawk
1: Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.